is Baseball Tonight, the podcast. This is the Baseball Tonight podcast for Wednesday, August 30th, 2023. And today will be better than yesterday. Taylor Schwenk, Bruce Baldwin are working back in Connecticut. I'm Buster only in my home in Montana. Taylor, fun show today. We get the return of Paul Hembikides, right? It, it should be a national holiday. There should be a parade thrown in his honor. We're going to unveil his statue. Uh, but in all seriousness, his absence has been noted. There's been a lot of days where we're trying to figure out guests and, you know, times are lean over here. Some Our, our regular list has dwindled a little bit and we're looking at each other and we're like, we need Hembo right now. But he's back just in time for the playoff push. Very excited. And you know he's going to have an attitude. And so you know he's going to be bringing it with a lot of uh, facts and figures, including kind of a crazy situation that has developed in the last 24 hours with the Angels. Uh, during the podcast today, you're also going to hear from Jerry Depoto, who had a baseball operations for the Seattle Mariners, as well as Jeff Fletcher of the Orange County Register is going to talk to us about Shohei Otani and what his future is and the red flags around his current situation. All right, yesterday, the San Francisco Giants played the Cincinnati Reds in San Francisco, and Alex Cobb had a no-hitter in progress, and he had a lead courtesy of his teammate Patrick Bailey. Haniger takes off. Bailey drags one to center field. Frito going back all the way to the wall. He will leap, and he can't catch it. It's over the wall. Into the bullpen. Patrick Bailey just beyond the reach. Great effort by the center fielder, but a home run to the right of straightaway center. There's his seventh of the year, and it's 5-0 Giants. That was Dave Fleming, KNBR. So there was no question that the Giants were going to win this game. The question down the stretch was, could Alex Cobb complete his no-hitter? In the eighth inning, this happened. Swing, and there's a pop fly. Shallow left center. Slater racing, diving. He makes the catch. What a play by Austin Slater. A headlong dive is a little slow in getting up. And hopefully he's okay. But he has saved the no-hitter, at least for the moment. And Alex Cobb needs three outs more as we go to the last of the eighth inning. And that, of course, was John Miller. This was the ninth inning. 0-1 pitch. There's a drive in the right center field. On the run, Matos back into his right. And it's over his head. It will roll into the sixth archway. And that's the first hit. Coming around to score is Senzel. And it is 6-1. to one. And that takes away the no-hitter for Alex Cobb. And, of course, big cheers for Alex Cobb. Giants win that game 6-1. to The Braves were in Colorado. Nobody can slow down Atlanta or Marcel Azuna. Here's a 1-1 pitch on the way. And Azuna clubs one to deep right field, heading back there towards the wall. Out of the ballpark. Marcel Azuna with power the opposite way. That one flying over that yellow stripe on top of the visitor scoreboard. And that is home run number 30 on the season for Marcelo Zuna. What a tear he's been on this summer. Yeah, from 680, the fan, the final score there was 3-1 to one Atlanta. The Cubs, the Brewers, in game two of this important series, the Brewers won on Monday, extending their winning streak to nine games. And on Tuesday, this was how the only run in that game was scored. On the ground to the right side, that'll get a run Around to first, and Bellinger knocks in the first run of the night. One nothing Cubs. 
Yeah, the final score there, one nothing Chicago. The Phillies and the Angels. Alec Bohm got a big hit. 0-1 the count. Here's the pitch. Swung on. Hit deep. Left center field. Up the alley. And there's another three-run home run <laughs> as Alec Bohm puts the Phillies on top. 15th home run of the season for Alec Bohm as he makes the Angels pay for walking Harper in a big way. From Sports Radio 94 WIP, the Phillies win this game 12-7. Bryce Harper hit career homer number 299, and he spoke after the game about hitting a home run for WIP caller Chuck. Driving in today, and you know, I'm listening to WIP like I do a lot, um, the two o'clock hour. And uh, a guy named Chuck called in, and he calls in a lot, he's hilarious. Uh, but I said, uh, you know, he was talking about our team and talking about me and stuff. And um, I walked in the training room, I was like, I'm gonna go deep tonight for Chuck. Uh, <laughs> that guy had me fired up, man. Um, but you know, it's just funny. I mean, this team as a whole, we. You know, come in here, play with Phillies across our chest. We're all family. We're all pulling, um, you know, on that same rope. And, um, you know, we just have a great group in here, a lot of fun, and just you know, really good team. So, Taylor, has any superstar free agent embraced his market the way Bryce Harper has embraced the Phillies? I mean, it is impressive. <laughs> He's a regular donk in his car, listening to WIP, listening to Chuck Collin scream about the Phillies. I love it. No, it was tremendous. Astros, Red Sox, game two of this important series for Boston are kind of the Red Sox hanging on the fringe of the American League wildcard race. And early on, Alex Bregman gave the Astros the lead. 2-1. And Bregman clubs this one deep to left center field. Going back on it is Yoshida, and he will watch that one go into the monster seats for Alex Bregman. And the Astros have a 1-0 lead. Bregman's 22nd of the year. Robert Ford, KBME, 790 AM. The next batter to the plate, Jordan Alvarez. And Alvarez belts this down the right field line. Ball is hooking, and it is fair around the rest. Pesky pole. Jordan Alvarez homers for a second straight day, and it is two to nothing Astros. Back-to-back jacks. Houston was on its way to a 6-2 win. Nobody dominates Fenway Park the way Jordan Alvarez does. The Red Sox also got this bad news. Outfielder Jaron Duran is out for the season. He's going to undergo surgery for turf toe. He has not played since early August. So the Astros win in Boston in the uh, American League West race. The Rangers were at City Field in the top of the seventh inning. The score was 0-0 until this happened. 1-0. Garver swings and drives one to left center field. Nimmo back, track, he turns, watches, out of here. Mitch Garver, another home run here in the month of August. This one breaks a scoreless ball game and gives the Rangers a 1-0 lead in the top of the seventh. From 105.3, the fan, the Rangers win 2-1. The Seattle Mariners, the hottest team in baseball, they had a tough day. Star outfielder Julio Rodriguez was scratched because of a pinched nerve in his left foot that leaves him day-to-day. Starting pitcher George Kirby was scratched before the game because of illness. And during the course of the game, Ty France left after two innings with a bruised left thumb. The Mariners were rallying down 3-1, to one, bottom of the ninth inning, and then this happened. Another 2-2. Got him! Upstairs, high octane at 95. And the A's on this Tuesday night slow down the best team in baseball in August. 
So Seattle loses, and at the end of the day, you've got the Astros, you've got the Rangers, you've got the Mariners all tied in the American League West. What a race. Meanwhile, one of the teams left behind, the Angels, placed a bunch of players on waivers, including their top trade acquisition before the deadline, Lucas Giolito. They also placed Matt Moore, Ronaldo Lopez, outfielders Hunter Renfro, Randall Gritchick, all going on waivers, and we'll explain in just a little while what their thought process is, the reaction around the sport, because this is definitely an interesting strategy that the Angels have taken on, and they're not alone. The Yankees cut Josh Donaldson, and they also placed Harrison Bader on waivers. All right, Taylor, what else you got? Buster, the College Game Day podcast is rocking and rolling. We did an episode on Monday. We did one today. We pre-recorded yesterday. Don't tell anyone, but we did it yesterday for today with uh, Bill Connolly talking about all the Thursday and Friday games. We got a good slate on Thursday and Friday night to start the college football season. So check them out. The College Game Day podcast, wherever you're listening to this podcast and on YouTube. Oh, also, Buster, I knew that I couldn't trust you. You you failed to mention the Orioles crushing win over the White Sox and Anthony Santander just, just raking right now. Oh, my God. Have you joined the conspiracy theory here? That bust that you yeah. hate that you hate the Orioles. Yes, yes. <laughs> mm, it's days like today that that make me question things. You know. You'll have all right. To, you'll Let's have hear the play. highlight. All right. All right. Two-two pitch. Ground ball. Base hit down the right field line. It'll score one. It'll score two. Henderson flying around third. He will make it. A three-run double for Anthony Santander breaks the tie. Dogs are an important part of our lives, and keeping them protected is a top priority, especially against nasty parasites. That's why you got to check out NexGuard Plus, a Foxaloner, Moxidectin, and Pyrantal chewable tablets. NexGuard Plus chews provide one-and-done monthly protection that kills fleas and ticks, prevents heartworm disease, plus it treats and controls roundworms and hookworms. That's a whole lot of protection packed into a delicious beef-flavored soft chew designed to make monthly dosing easy and enjoyable. So the next time you're at the vet, ask about NextGuard Plus Chews. They're the one-and-done monthly parasite protection you want for your dog. Used with caution in dogs with a history of seizures or neurological disorders. Dogs should be tested for existing heartworm infection prior to starting preventive. You can now stream the most MLB games on DirecTV without a satellite dish. Yes, the clutch hits, the strikeouts, grand salamis, web gems, with nothing on your roof. So whoever's up there, whether it's roofers, Santa, birds, old-timey chimney sweeps, moody teenagers, thrill-seeking raccoons, you name it, they won't find a satellite dish. But you will find your MLB games on DirecTV. That means DirecTV is your home for baseball this season. Root, 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 with nothing on your roof. Call 1-800-DIRECTV or visit directtv.com. Sign up today. Claim based on total games carried on sports networks. Sports availability varies by zip code and requires choice package. Gary DePoto is the head of baseball operations for the Seattle Mariners, who are rolling right now and uh, Jerry, just before we got started, you mentioned this news that you tested positive for COVID. I guess if, if that's going to happen for head of baseball operations, this is the time of year when you want it to happen, right? 
Yeah, I guess so. Better than, you know, during the draft or, or during the trade deadline. You know, now we, we have nothing to do but watch the team and have fun every night. So I guess uh, I'll have to have fun for my, my TV for a couple of days. So is that, are you going to isolate now? Are you going to be locked in a room watching your team? Yeah, which is not the worst thing in the world the way we're playing right now. So tell me what it's like, what it's been like to see the, the response of the, the city, your fans, to what they've been doing over the last month. You know, I, very similar to what we experienced last year in September and into October, just a, a fan base that's hungry for us to perform, and and we're doing it right now. The, the last two months, this team has been on fire, and, you know, especially in the month of August, just all of our guys from 1 to 26, even a couple of the guys who've been on and off the roster with, you know, a couple of, of needs or openings – everybody's contributed and the fans are into it. The stadium's full every night and the town's on fire. All right. And I want to ask you about a couple of individual players, but I'm really curious. You mentioned about the team, you know, getting hot uh, back in July. Tell me about where you were with your thought process in terms of the question of buy or sell. Cause it, to me, it's interesting. You and the Cubs have sort of lived very parallel lives during this time period where we assume, for example, that the Cubs are going to be sellers. Then they got hot their offense came out of nowhere. It felt like they turned it around. Now they're in a good position to make the playoffs. You guys seem to follow a similar trajectory. Yeah, it's funny. During the trade deadline, Jed and I talked about that very thing, that, that we were, you know, in some ways we were very similar. We had a very similar run differential, and 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 yet we weren't able to to separate ourselves from, from the pack. And, you know, going into the trade deadline every year, we, we view the trade deadline as just another opportunity to, to add to, to our growing or, or evolving roster. We don't really view it as, as a timestamp. And, you know, every, every opportunity to get to the market, be it free agency, trade markets, what have you, it's just an ongoing roster development. And, you know, we always have one foot in the camp of the current year and this situation and the other foot in the do the right thing for, for the long term, I, I guess, ability to sustain a winning product. And, and I feel like we did that at the deadline and, and hopefully it continues to, to prove to be the case. I know from talking with other teams that you're sort of weighing uh, possibilities both ways. Uh, how far did you get down the road in your mind? Like, yeah, I think maybe, you know, we need to sell more pieces this year. You know, we, we talked about any number of different trades with any number of teams. We never close the door on anything. That's we're a pretty active team in that way. And, you know, we seek out any possible fits and, you know, I don't, I wouldn't say we got particularly close on, on anything else. Uh, maybe the the next closest thing we had was maybe more of a traditional buy trade, you know, and it's uh, it, those things didn't come to pass. It was a really unusual market this year. I, I didn't think it was as robust as in years past. There weren't a lot of bats that were that were readily available. And and that's the area that if we were shopping, we were we would choose to have shopped in. Uh, and we went the road of Josh Rojas and Dom Canzone, who we felt like just made us deeper. You know, if if not more name recognition, adding left-hand bats, athletes that can make us a better, deeper lineup, and, and so far, so good. Uh, one thing I love about the trade deadline is that, you know, all year and, and through players' careers, we hear about, you know, big sample size and broad spectrum, and the trade deadline is the one time here when it feels like decisions can be based on, you know, 72 hours worth of play. What was uh, the time frame where you were like, okay, no, we're, we're going forward? 
I don't know. We ever got there. You know, we, we, we just, we went into the trade deadline looking to get deeper and what can we do? We were, we were all about players that could be with us for more than just the, you know, a rental period. And that's generally how we've gone into the deadlines. You know, Josh will be here for another couple of years beyond this. Dom is controllable for the next six years and Ryan bliss who joins our minor league system very similarly. And if you flash back, this is Luis Castillo from a year ago, you know, who was a year and two months and we were able to do an extension. And, you know, we, we've always focused on players that we felt like we could grow forward with. It makes the most sense for us in our roster model, in our market and with this roster. So, you know, it, it's the way we we chose to go. We didn't really pay a whole lot of mind to, to players who were going to be on and off our roster just in this this one calendar year. All right. As you know, Julio Rodriguez got off to a bit of a sluggish start this year. And the last month, he's going nuts. Uh, you know, he's batting about 500. What changed in your eyes in him as a hitter? You know, I, I do think that there was some internal pressure that Julio was putting a lot of pressure on himself to deliver. You know, he's he's really prideful. Uh, he knows how good he is and, and how good he can be. And he also knows how important he is to, to our organization, to, to our city. And and this year, I think, add to that the pressure of how important he is to the game. You know, with the All-Star game here in Seattle, I think he felt some pressure to be present for that. And then as it got closer with the home run contest and and actually making the roster, you know, that was additional pressure. So I felt like every day there was something externally that was causing him to put more and more pressure on himself internally. And, you know, we got past that all-star game and he just exploded. Uh, some of it was a physical adjustment that he made. You know, he's he's a little more upright, not so deep in his legs, and and he's far more athletic in the box. And, and right now it's, it's really proving to be true. And there's few players that can hit the ball as hard, run as fast, cover the type of ground. And, and he's doing it all right now. It's infield hits, it's homers, it's lasers in the gap. It's great catches. It's stolen bases. How does I've ever seen a player in my baseball life? So in the time I've covered baseball, uh, an example of a player whose confidence rubbed off on other guys, the best example for me was Derek Jeter, who just, played every game assuming that he was going to find a way to win. And I think that benefited other players, even veteran guys. Julio seems to be that type of guy. He really is an infectious personality. He plays the game with a ton of passion. He plays hard every day, you know, whether he's 0 for 4 or 4 for 4. He's busting it down the line. He's tracking something down in the gap. I think he's infectious from the clubhouse out. You know, he has that kind of personality that just – it, it's inviting. It's inviting to teammates. It's inviting to fans. And it's so fun to watch day in and day out. And, and I do think that it rubs off on the others. And right now we've got a lot of guys that are really in a great place physically on the field and they're having fun doing it. And Julio's right in the center of the, the, the hurricane, I suppose. When I reached out to you a few weeks ago, as you guys are really gathering steam, the first player mentioned in, in the return text was J.P. Crawford. Uh, and how important he is. How come? JP, in many ways, like he's our vibe. You know, it's a JP's got a cool factor on the field. He's got a confidence level that he plays with. He's also on base about 39% of the time. So that's a, that's a, a real benefit. And since he took over the leadoff spot from Julio and Julio dropped down to that two hole, it just really made our lineup 
go. And, you know, I, I, I think JP has a natural swagger to him on the field that, that gives our team that type of moxie that, uh, that the winning teams have. And, and right now he's delivering, you know, whether it's leading off games with home runs or making the big play defensively to, to squash a rally or, or win a game, he's kind of done it all for us. And, and in a lot of ways from opening day to now, he's been our most consistent player. So I remember having a conversation with you earlier this year about sort of the development of your team. Uh, and I mentioned the comparison uh, to you guys trying to go overcome the Astros to back in the day, the Pistons trying to beat the Celtics and then the Bulls trying to beat the Pistons. I, it feels like this year that your guys kind of crossed that Rubicon from the outside looking in, but you know the team a lot better than I do. What do you think? You know, we've we've played these guys so often, and I, I do know that last year when we played them in a postseason series in, in which they wound up sweeping us, and it was probably about as hard fought and close as a sweep could possibly be. And, and I felt like in that series, our guys realized that they could go play with the Astros and, and take them down. Uh, and, you know, we didn't do it on that day. We have played much better against them through the course of this year. Obviously, just came out from a, a big sweep in Houston, which was, you know, a real confidence builder for our team. Uh, this is a, a team that's been to the last six ALCS. They're multiple time world champs. And, you know, we respect the heck out of them. But at the end of the day, you at some point, you're going to have to beat them if, if you want to get on top of the division. And, and really, our group has delivered this year. They're not afraid. You know, we go into Houston. We have had our troubles in Houston for a number of years. And, and this year, this team just plays with a lot more self-confidence in that environment than other teams before them. And you know, I, I'm, I'm proud of them because it's a it's a hard mountain to climb when you're dealing with a, an opponent as good as the Astros. All right, Jerry. Hope you feel better. Thanks for doing this. You got it, Buster. Jumping into the numbers. This is Hembo Knows on Baseball Tonight. And Hembo is Paul Embikidis. Welcome back, Hembo. After taking <laughs> up all this time to be a stay-at-home dad, we're so happy to have you back. How you doing? I'm doing great. I appreciate you saying that. Uh, the last few months have been wonderful. You, you know, being able to immerse myself in in the day to day of the girls. Because um, obviously, I worked almost every day for like the first eight or so months of their life. So not only did I have the chance to do that every day, which was wonderful, but also I had the chance to watch an irresponsible amount of baseball because I was up in the evenings for the first time in like eight years. Uh, you know, I work morning TV and radio for most of my time here at ESPN. So I am well equipped and prepared to talk baseball with you. And is one of the things that I most missed during my time away. Well, and I thought about reaching out to you so many times. You know, we're getting close to the trade deadline. We're going to see what the Phillies are going to do. I was excited with the moves they made. And, and I'm just like, nope, can't do it. You know what? He, he stepped away for a reason, and I, and I was going to give you your space. Oh, you're a good man, because I wish everyone had done so. I got the occasional one-off text from uh, 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 reporters or analysts to be named later, uh, asking for assistance here and there, which I was welcome to do, uh, happy to do, although not technically allowed to do. We don't have to share this with human resources. But all in all, I did the very best I could to remove myself from the group. <laughs> I appreciate you helping me uh, adhere to that plan. I didn't think about that. You Like, you got some leverage here, right? I mean, you could threaten a human resource. Uh, you know, filing or something like that. Yeah, that that's was, right. That, that, okay. Um, all right. Before we get into the list, you and I were uh, kicking back and forth yesterday of possible topics. Let's talk about this news that broke yesterday that the Angels, who within a month, they make the decision to keep Shohei Otani, 
And then they go out and they added a bunch of players figuring, heck, if we're going to keep Otani, then we might as well try to improve our team to put us in the best possible position. They immediately fall apart. They're out of the race quickly. And now they put all these players, these potential free agents, out on waivers essentially to try to dump salary. Lucas Giolito, of course, is the headliner of those, but you've also got Randall Grichik, uh, you know, other veterans as well. When you heard about this, what'd you make of it? I mean, I was as stunned as the rest of the industry must have been. N- not because it was necessarily the wrong decision, because the Angels have demonstrated over the last month that not only should they uh, not have been a buyer, but that their decision to do so was almost immediately a total catastrophe, like you said. But the scope of this is not something that I ever remember happening before. I mean, in effect, they waived a quarter of their roster one month, uh, one month away or removed from going all in, in the midst of the fact that, you know, Otani tore his elbow again and Mike Travis back on the injured list. I think the worst month I can ever recall a team having. And in some sense, I'm not like one of these types that enjoys astrology or believes in, co- you know, karmic or cosmic justice or anything like that. But this is kind of a fitting way for the season to symbolically end for the Angels during a run in which they've had eight, now eight consecutive losing seasons, the longest streak of that kind, despite having Mickey Mantle and Babe Ruth on their team for practically all of it. It's crazy. I mean, like in, in all candor, like this is actually kind of fitting. But at the same time, I wonder if Major League Baseball is going to have to step in at some point and say, we can't have non-contending teams just shedding a bunch of payroll to get under the luxury tax at the end of the season once they decide they're not going to try to win. I mean, honestly, it's like more of a it's more of like a pernicious tanking mechanism than we've seen teams do for entire seasons at a time. It was extremely overt, over the top, and I think there's a reasonable chance that Major League Baseball is going to take umbrage with it, and for good reason. Yeah, Hembo, so uh, I remember talking to someone after they made that series of decisions where they're keeping Otani and they're adding and saying, you realize, of course, that if this doesn't work, especially if Otani leaves as a free agent, it's going to go down in history as one of the worst series of decisions that any team has ever made. And the person I talked to was like, yeah, I know. (laughs) Like, it's, you know, there's a part of me that respected the fact that they are trying to win. We're seeing all these teams tag, but they're actually trying to win. But on the other hand, they can't run away from the fact that, uh, but boy, this could turn out to be a total disaster if Otani winds up signing with another team. So to your point, I agree with you. I think this has got to be unnerving for Major League Baseball to see a team to do this. And by the way, the feedback I got from people with teams last night was, you know what, after a lot of really dumb decisions in their eyes, the Angels made smart decisions in trying to do this. Under the current rules, if you're trying to get in a luxury tax threshold, you know what? Dump these guys out there. Somebody's probably going to claim Lucas Giolito, right? Somebody uh, probably is going to claim relief pitchers down the stretch because there's not a lot of money involved. And in if that can help the Angels with the luxury tax threshold, hey, it makes sense. But to your point, I do think for Major League Baseball, this is essentially a circumvention of the rules that they put in place in 2019. They, as you know, they ended the August waiver period, the, the way the rules have been run in the past, because they didn't like the idea of teams being reshaped late in the year. They wanted to keep integrity of rosters. They didn't want big market teams, especially to have advantages over small market teams, because the big market teams would put in a bunch of waiver claims and the small market teams couldn't be as aggressive Well, we're back in the same boat because now with a month to go, there are a lot of small market teams that are not going to uh, probably even think about being aggressive with waiver claims because they're not going to take on that kind of money of 
you know, these angel players or Harrison Bader as these teams dump them out. And I do think they probably are going to need a rule adjustment. Yeah, this to me is kind of like a, a red flag that Major League Baseball can probably learn from. Like when you write rules, you don't necessarily know what all the, you know, the, unint- uh, the unintended consequences might be. In this case, what we learned this week is that the Angels wanted to cut a quarter of their roster, save a bunch of money, and they were allowed to. It's probably the most, I don't know, fiscally responsible thing buster that they've done in quite some time. But I think there's a real chance that we should be talking about whether or not they should even be permitted to do such a thing. Like, I've been playing fantasy baseball like my whole life. There's there's certain players on the can't cut list, right? Like, maybe Major League Baseball needs some kind of provisions when it comes to players, whether it be the amount of service time that they've accrued, whether it be there's a certain amount that you have to retain, there's a certain max for a given number of days or something. Because this is absurd. I mean, to... This is the kind of thing that you would see only in the fantasy baseball league. But look, this, right. is, this is the this is what the Angels are doing, and so this is why they've kind of been the laughing stock of the sport in some sense for the better part of the last decade. Yeah, it feels like this is Artie Moreno sort of flipping the you know the the game board because it didn't go well. Um, and and again, so. it's it's permitted within the rules. They haven't done anything wrong. Major League Baseball is not going to investigate it now. But you do wonder if going forward, some of the uh, the powers that be are going to say, "Hey, we we have to put in." some sort of rules because you don't want to get this to become a trend so that by the time we get to every August, we got 12 teams dumping a lot of players into the, into waivers and completely changing the balance of power potentially. All right. Uh, We weighed in last week on Shohei Otani and what his injury potentially could mean. Uh, How does this uh, affect your perception about what his value is going to be in free agency? Yeah, Buster, I think we may have overreacted to this last week. Now, obviously, it was it was seismic news in baseball, and it was a horrible news for the sport. He is the most marketable player we've had in 100 years. But I'm not sure as it relates to his free agency, like his long-term future, that it's going to make as much of a difference as we may have speculated. And that's because I think Otani's value to a major league owner is greater than his value to a major league GM. And when it comes to Otani, like this is going to be an owner's decision with a player of that magnitude and of that yep. caliber. This is what we know. So what Fangraphs estimates is that his on-field value over the last three years, his two-way value has been equivalent to about $210 million, $70 million a year, which is obviously astonishing. So what I want to do is break up Otani kind of into three parts, his free agency into three parts. Number one is Otani the draw. And that's the thing that the owner is going to care about the most. Like, an owner wants to build a baseball empire, right? A GM wants to build a great baseball team. And Otani is the only baseball player in the world that enables you to build the former kind of all by himself. And so that's a huge aspect here. If he never throws another pitch for the rest of his life, he's already built enough celebrity and enough sort of worldwide fame to, I think, that's going to have a qualitative and quantitative value to your franchise in a huge way. When it comes to Shohei Otani, the hitter, I mean, you know this as well as anybody. He's effectively the best hitter in the sport right now, Buster. And we just saw Aaron Judge, who is two years older, right? Who's not, who's not going to throw a single pitch over the next nine years, get nine years for $360 million, $40 million per year, just for that bat on the open market, I think sets a baseline of $40 million. And when you also consider the fact that Shohei Otani, at minimum, you could consider being a once-a-week pitcher down the line, maybe a, a spot reliever. It's sort of up to him. Like I think he's actually capable of doing most anything that he wants. Just the prospects, the possibility of that added value is going to have to be baked into the cake. So, yes, obviously you would have much preferred he not be injured and enter free agency whole. I don't, however, think it changes your 8- to 10- to 12-year outlook on the guy considering in that order, his, you know, the draw, the bat, and then the pitching – 
the pitching is far and away the number three thing on that list. You still need five other starters if you have him because he's only going to start once a week for you. Your bullpen's going to be a little bit compromised. Like There's always been some question there as to the best way to build around him if he's going to continue to pitch. But to me, like this is Babe Ruth in 1920. He had a comparable season with Boston, right? His first year at the Yankees as a full-time position player was absolutely unbelievable. Who's to say that if Shohei Otani decides to eschew the pitching long-term, that he could not be the kind of bat that Babe Ruth was? I don't think he has that in his bag. No one ever has. But he has absolutely demonstrated this year that he has the capability to be a much greater hitter than I certainly ever thought. And it wouldn't surprise me at all if three years from now, he is like considered, without a doubt, the best hitter in baseball, in part because he can commit to himself full-time. So I do think, and Jeff Pass and I talked about this in the pod last Friday, that there will be at least one team that will look at it the way you did. And I also believe that there will be teams, I know this, the teams are going to say, ah, boy. Like not having him available as a pitcher and not having seen him prove himself as a position player is going to have impact. Uh, You know, you mentioned you compared him to Aaron Judge. I think the perception around the sport is Aaron Judge is an elite outfielder. And he brings that part of the game. And I think we all believe that Otani could have that capability, just as we thought Fernando Tatis Jr. could be a great outfielder. And Tatis Jr. is, but Otani hasn't done it yet. So it'll be interesting to see what happens. Uh, How the heck do the Mariners and Cubs go from being really bad offensive teams to really good in season? Because I can't remember seeing two examples of this. Yeah, this is a great question that you asked me, and it was really fun to dig into. Um, In the case of the Mariners, it's really been a one-month explosion, and I think most of it can be attributed to things that aren't necessarily replicable. I I think those things are the schedule. You know, they played about half the month against four of the five worst teams in the American League, which is not to discredit what they've done, but it is merely to contextualize what they've done. As a team, you've got a 355 batting average on balls in play this month. Like, for some context, like, Tony Gwynn's career Babbitt was 341, okay? So you're not going to hit them where they ain't, like, Tony Gwynn for much longer if you're the Mariners. That we know. They're also, despite playing in a really pitcher-friendly ballpark, homering, like, once in every 20 at-bats, which is, like, equivalent to the career of Miguel Cabrera. So these are not sustainable, replicable things. It does help, of course, that you've gotten, like, two-and-a-half war from Julio Rodriguez this month by himself. He's been unbelievable. The best player in the American League this month, for sure, in my judgment. All that being said... I'm still all in on the Seattle Mariners because of their run prevention. You didn't have to ask me about their run prevention because they're better at pitching than any team in baseball. So if let's say we thought their, uh, their lineup was, say, average, and it was basically average through the month of July, let's say they're, I don't know, the 10th best lineup in baseball moving forward. That combined with that pitching staff buster is to me why they're absolutely a legitimate threat to win the American League. Yeah, uh, I, I agree with you. I think you put them in the, uh, in the postseason with the way that pitching plays. I think that's a team that could win. Uh, all right, nationally MVP race. It felt like a month ago it was a done deal. Ronald Cooney Jr. was going to win. But you saw the odds for Mookie Betts winning the MVP have now surpassed that of Acuna Jr. Who do you think is the front runner? I think Mookie Betts is, is the front runner and is going to win it. But this is going to be a race buster for which there are two right answers. Kind of like last year in the American League with Judge and Otani. Kind of like in 1941 in the American League with Ted Williams and Joe DiMaggio. I mean, these are two all-time great players having all-time great seasons. As it stands today, Mookie's got the edge in homers and RBI and OPS and war. As it stands today, Acuna's got the edge in hits and steals and average and on-base percentage. So, like, these guys are both hitting leadoff for prolific offenses, both primarily playing right field, right? And that's kind of how I break the tie here. That's how I break the tie. 
Right now, Ronald Acuna Jr., who has only played right field, has been effectively league average there, right? He's zero defensive runs saved in right field this season. But this is kind of the genius of Mookie Betts this year. It's the 626 innings in right field in which he's been plus three. The 336 innings at second base in which he has been plus five. And then 98 innings at shortstop in which he has been a neutral defender. That is indescribably valuable and very hard to sort of demonstrate quantitatively. But I bet if you were to talk to Dave Roberts, you would say that has been an enormous boost for us. And 243 plate appearances for Betts as a middle infielder, he's got an OPS of 1013. That's second in baseball behind only Corey Seager. You're getting that production out of a guy playing short and second is completely absurd. What does that enable you to do? Play Jason Hayward, Jason Hayward in right field. He's got an 886 OPS in the games in which he has played right field. Miguel Vargas doesn't get to play then. He's got an OPS of 672. So Mookie Betts is essentially making you way better at two positions by being able to move around. Look, I think he's one of the best athletes to ever play this game. The fact that you can go and be a plus player in the middle of the diamond in the infield, like on a whim, is crazy talk. And for me, despite the fact that you know Acuna's got like a 50-steal advantage, if I'm looking to break ties, it's going to be the position versatility that he has provided his manager with that Acuna and, frankly, any other, any other player in the big leagues just can't do. That's why I think Betts is going to wind up winning this thing. All right. The Yankees will be doing a total review of their organization in the offseason. What do you think should be changed? Well, a lot should be changed. It's almost like uh, Hal Steinbrenner needs to find like some sort of independent fact finder to be able to do an investigation here as to how things could go wrong so fast because they really <laughs> you're, need you're looking for a special prosecutor, Hembo, of the Yankees. <laughs> yeah. Yes, yes. Uh, we're, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm not going to name names, but I have, I have some in mind if we can offline this. So there's really two things, Buster. Like there are a lot of things that we could identify or point to. There are two things that I really can't can't square uh, that they need to adjust. I think the first of which is is the contract philosophy. And the second of which is the way that they just generally construct their lineups. When it comes to the contract philosophy, I think you have to look back with some regret with a lot of these deals that they've made with veterans with good track records. When they acquired Stanton, it was on a 13-year deal. They signed Hicks to a seven-year deal. Rodon to a six-year deal. That's you know TBD, of course. LeMahieu to a six. And they acquired Josh Donaldson in the midst of a four. You're not buying prime years for most of these players with the length of those injuries, uh, excuse me, contracts. And you're also opening yourself up to regression and injury because you're paying mostly 30-somethings. And over the course of time, it clutters your payroll. So while I understand that general managers like to spread out the luxury tax hit over the course of time, if you make enough mistakes with those kinds of contracts, the Yankees are learning that you can't eat your way out of that, right? You'd rather pay someone more for a year or two and then be able to start from fresh. But the opportunity cost here is You're thinking about the Mets, Scherzer, Verlander. For example. See, that is a reasonable approach to take because I can get out from it, as the Mets have demonstrated. I'm not exactly sure how the Yankees are going to get out from all of it. It's going to be much more challenging. Secondly, the lineup construction is something that is, it, it, I'm flummoxed by. So since 2021, so this is not a, a, a small sample size. This is a three-year period, Buster. The Yankees ranked dead last in, the, in, in all of baseball in producing runs without homering getting rid of all the runs in which they have scored via home runs. They're 30th out of 30 teams. That's okay if you can pull it off. But if you're going to build your lineup around hitting the home run, more of them have to be left-handed. You play in the, in the ballpark, which is the second easiest ballpark to homer in if you're a left-handed hitter according to the numbers. Bryce Harper was a free agent. So was Freddie Freeman. And so was Kyle Schwarber. Corey Seager. And so was Masa Yoshida why are none of these guys on the Yankees? Like, it doesn't make much sense to me. I'm sure Brian Cashman has a cogent explanation for it, but it doesn't make much sense to me why you wouldn't build a lineup in which I'm going to play 81 games in this place where I can exploit this clear and obvious advantage. 
We saw the Orioles move all the, move all the fences back. They've been effectively good immediately afterwards. Ever like there's definitely something to that for sure. The Yankees are effectively electing not to ex- exploit a huge advantage. They have, uh, and you look at just plate appearances from left-handed hitters, Buster, the second fewest in all of baseball this year. To me, that's just not good enough. I mean, perhaps they have an internal explanation for it, but from where I sit, that is an opportunity for them to exploit in the future, and they've passed on a lot of free agents at the expense of some guys that they currently have, and those are deals that I sure uh, I would imagine they regret not making. So I'm working on a piece on this, and uh, I'm looking for more feedback from you on that. Uh, as we go along this week, because I think there's it. some other things, whether it's, you know, working with Anthony Volpe on pulling the ball, because that mm. shocked opposing evaluators that he's become basically mm. all pull, all or nothing guy, um, you know, and how they uh, view swing and miss. Um, that's the perception of other teams that they are too liberal with that. All right. We're, we're running out of time real quick. 30 seconds. Give me your top three teams to win the World Series. You got it. So um, I'll go three, two, one. My number three is the Dodgers. They, they got the best one-two tandem in the lineup, maybe ever. Bobby Miller emergence has has gone a long way in sort of solidifying that rotation. They're as good as anybody right now, and the, their strength of record is awfully good too. Number two for me is the is the Phillies. Actually, this is the team with the deepest pitching staff in, in the National League, in my judgment. Three stud starters, three stud swingmen, and a really really good bullpen that's a lot better than it was a year ago when they won the pennant, not to mention that Bryce Harper and Trey Turner have turned it on right now. The two of them are hitting 340 and slugging 706 combined this month. But number one is the Braves. Like, who are we kidding? Like, if you're, if you're doing probabilities, the, the Braves had the best team. They've got 112 more homers than their opponents and have struck out 170 fewer times. No team has ever slugged 500 in a season, and they're on pace to do it. Like, to me, that's the best team. Would I be surprised if they got knocked out early? No, not really, because that's baseball. Just like it happened last year. But look, the Braves had the best team. And I can acknowledge that. So to me, it's the Dodgers at three, the Phillies at two, the Braves at one. And I am not touching. I am not touching the American League, my friend. I can't figure that thing out uh, for the life of me. Yeah, you and I are in the same boat. We have our order a little bit different. I got the Phillies at three and the Dodgers at two. But I agree with you. Like the National League playoffs are going to be a beast. You know, it's like stacking (laughs) Kentucky, North Carolina, Duke in one one region. It's going to be a lot of fun. All right, sir. Great to catch up. Later, friends. The NFL schedule drops this week, and you can be there to catch all the action live and in person with Vivid Seats. Experience every touchdown, every tackle, and every eye-popping play of your favorite team. And to kick it off, Vivid Seats, the official ticketing partner of ESPN, is offering you $20 off your first $200 ticket purchase with code BASEBALL. That's code BASEBALL. Download the app or visit VividSeats.com today. That's VividSeats.com today, code baseball. Vivid Seats, experience it live. We're driven by the search for better. When it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites according to a recent Indeed survey. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide 
that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of the show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash Buster. Just go to Indeed.com slash Buster right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash Buster. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Jeff Fletcher covers the Angels for the Orange County Register. He's the author of Showtime, the inside story of Shohei Otani and the greatest baseball season ever played. Jeff, before we got started, I asked you, are you looking forward to the end of the regular season? And you knew exactly how many games are left. <laughs> it is, it's, it's been that kind of a year for the Angels, huh? Yeah. I mean, the thing, the Angels are always interesting. There's always stuff to write about, but it does kind of get grueling when the backdrop of all that is not winning. And it's sort of this whole frustration that is felt by the entire baseball world that this team can't win. And that just all kind of gets thrown at the Angels via me a lot of times. And uh, it, it gets uh, long. Season gets long. All right. Well, I guess the, the big piece of information everyone seems to be waiting for now is what's going to happen with Otani and whether or not he's going to need surgery. What's the latest that you've heard on that front? Well, as we sit here on a Tuesday afternoon, we still don't know if he's going to have Tommy John surgery or not. And, uh, you know, he's waiting to get a second opinion. Uh, the last time this happened, he found out the beginning of September that he needed Tommy John surgery, and then he continued to hit through the end of the season, he had the surgery on October 1st. And as a result, the following season, he was not in the lineup until about May 9th. So I'll be really curious to see what he does this time because uh, I'm sure he doesn't want to miss another month of the season for whoever he's playing for next year uh, with you know where the Angels are right now. So that's kind of what we're waiting on. We're waiting on to see if he's going to have Tommy John surgery, which I think people most expect that he is. And, uh, if he's going to have it, if he's going to have it right away or wait till the season's over. All right. I'm going to ask you a question. I know the answer to, but I think it's, it's worth getting on the record. What has Otani said about any of this uh, since we got word that uh, he's got this torn UCL UCL zero, absolutely zero. He has told us nothing. Uh, he's not had any media availability really since the last time he pitched, which was two weeks before the uh, time he pitched that he got hurt. So it's now three weeks, basically, since we've heard a word out of his mouth. What is that about, uh, you know, in terms of – because, as you know, uh, most players, when they go through situations like this, at some point they become available. What about Otani? Uh, well, you know, obviously Otani's not most players. He's kind of on his own schedule and routine when it comes to that, and the Angels allow it. Uh, you know, it's it's frustrating for all of us because we'd like to know what's going on. And there's there's also this whole separate narrative about, you know, did the Angels mishandle him? And the Angels keep saying, well, Otani told us he was fine. Otani told us he wanted to pitch. So it would be nice to hear from Otani about all that, but, but we haven't. So, uh, you know, I think – I assume that he wants to get his second opinion and find out exactly what he's going to do and then talk to us. But uh, – you know, so far, all we know is that uh, he's not talking to us right now. Yeah, that was interesting over the weekend. Tim Kirkchen and I talked about this in the podcast on Monday, uh, how it did, does feel like the Angels are trying to get their side of the story out in terms of the timeline and all this. 
because uh, I, you know, had conversations with people, other other clubs who've asked me, oh, did the Angels run him into the ground? Did the Angels mishandle him? And I just shook my head. I'm like, no, 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 no. <laughs> Anything that happens, it's directed by Otani in this case. So uh, to how you process that is the Angels, whether it's Perry Manassi and Phil Nevin came out and sort of gave their perspective on how this played out. Yeah, I mean, they're basically the first few years when Otani was in the big leagues, the Angels had really strict uh, rules about his use and they gave him a lot of rest and he still got hurt and he also didn't perform that well. So they kind of had this big change of plans when Perry Manassian took over in uh, 2021 and they said, look, Otani, we're just going to let you be in charge. You know your body better than anybody. He'd gone to driveline the winter before to get even more, you know, empirical data about his body. And so they said, all right, you're going to be in charge. You tell us when you need a day off. You tell us when you can pitch. You tell us whatever you want. And they trusted him and it worked flawlessly for two seasons and five sixths of another season or two thirds of another season. And uh, so along with all this, you know, when he had the cramps and the fatigue and the fingernail and the blister, you know, they pushed him back a couple of days once they skipped an entire start once because he said he was fatigued, but basically they trusted him. They said, do you feel any pain? No. Do you feel like you can pitch? Yes. And that was the end of it. And, you know, they did ask him if he wanted to have an MRI uh, after he had the, the finger cramping, which was at the beginning of August, about August 3rd. And uh, he said, no, thanks. You know, I'm fine. It's just a cramp and I don't need an MRI. And the Angels can't, can't stuff him in an MRI tube against his will. So that was it. And uh, then he, that was after, uh, he had another start after that. And then he had the fatigue and he skipped a start. And then he said he was ready to go for the, the following the, the ultimate start. And uh, that's when he had the injury. So Jeff Passon mentioned in the podcast on Friday, and I thought it was a, a smart read on, on what's going on, knowing the relationship between uh, Otani and the Angels and how this information gets out. He mentioned that, you know, the fact that Perry came out last week and announced that he had a torn UCL uh, tells you that it's probably pretty serious because if it was a minor tear, then we wouldn't be hearing anything about it. It would be kept under wraps, especially with a guy potentially as a free agent. Um, so that, you know, we're all left to read tea leaves because we haven't heard from uh, from either from Otani or his, his camp, which is going to be running all the decisions at this point. Uh, but that's that was Jeff's read on it. What about you? Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, the Angels certainly don't want to release any information, that, you know, just in general on all their players. They kind of give you the best case scenario in a lot of cases. And then it frustrates people because they, they say, you know, player X is going to be out for two weeks and then he's out for four weeks. So definitely with Otani, uh, they would have given us the the best case scenario. They would have said, oh, there's there's something going on. He's not going to pitch again right now. We're going to have him get checked again and we'll get back to you. But the fact that they told us right away that first day, it's tear in his UCL, it's probably, you know, as, as Jeff surmised, and I think that's fair to say, it's, it's probably a decent tear. All right, so how do you th- – I'll ask you the question I've been asked a bunch in the last uh, week. How do you think this is going to affect his free agency? We're certainly going to get less. Uh, you know, the question is how much less – I mean, I think if you you say, well, he's as good a hitter as Aaron Judge was, and he's younger than Aaron Judge, and he's more marketable than Aaron Judge, 
you say even if you only look at him as a hitter, he should be north of that. And Judge had offers, you know, in the 400s. So uh, he's certainly going to get in that range. I mean, the, the difference is, though, that Aaron Judge plays defense. And a guy who's strictly a DH, you know, as much as we really only talk about the numbers at the plate, there is value to playing defense. And uh, if he's not going to do that, then that does eliminate some of the value. Uh, he is going to pitch at some point. Definitely, he's going to he's going to try. We don't know how good he's going to be. I think he's probably still going to be pretty good. It may not be for as many years. Who knows? But uh, you still add all that up and the marketability and all that. He's still probably going to break the record of uh, 426, which is Mike Trout's contract. But uh, I, I really don't see him getting to like the 600 level and any any of that kind of stuff, which I actually thought that was kind of far-fetched to begin with just because I think that he was going to go where he wanted to go as opposed to where he got the most money. So I don't think there was really going to be a bidding war in the first place. I think the teams you know, were going to meet like whatever minimum he felt was fair. And then he was just going to pick where he wanted to go. And he wasn't going to make the teams like bid against each other. But uh, yeah. still, there's, there's less now, obviously. Yeah, and I talked to someone the other day who knows Otani a little bit. And he, he mentioned that he said, I, I think Otani already knows where he wants to play, as he did. The, that the perception of some of the teams after he went through it the last time was that, uh, you know, he sort of settled early on on the Angels and didn't didn't necessarily pick them late. What's your gut on that in terms of what he wants well, he definitely picked the Angels very quickly the first time. I mean, he had their meeting with them on Monday, and he said he was signing with them on Friday. So that was pretty quick. Uh, this time, I don't know. Um, I think that seriously, he probably has not given a whole lot of thought to it, which I know most of us out there in the rest of the world think that's ludicrous, that that could be possible. But this guy is just operating on a different planet than the rest of us in terms of the way he focuses on baseball. And I think he really doesn't even want to think about it. And uh, he's just focusing on being a possible baseball player he can be. And then when those decisions come up to him, he'll he'll deal with it then. I mean, I'm sure he's got a general idea, but I, I don't think that he's picked for sure. So uh, a couple of things that uh, were interesting at the end of last week, after he suffered the – or we got news that he suffered the injury – um, I talked to other agents who don't represent Otani, and I talked with teams – that potentially could be involved in the bidding. And what I got a lot of feedback on was, well, you know, with the structure of the contract going forward with the uncertainty about what he's going to provide as a pitcher, maybe uh, you build some incentive clauses into it based on appearances, based on starts, because you don't know exactly what you're going to get. Uh, or maybe, uh, you know, he switches to a John Smoltz type role. He's a DH and then he closes out games. And some of the feedback I got after I wrote that the other day, someone who knows him said, He's not an incentive clause type guy. There's no chance he's going to go for that. Uh, and the second thing was that he just doesn't uh, – this person said he ain't going to be a relief pitcher. At least that's not going to be the goal at the beginning. He's going to be dead set on being a starting pitcher. You know him a lot better than I do. What do you think? Well, first of all, a lot of people have had this relief pitcher idea, and I just don't know how that works logistically. Like if you're batting in the top of the ninth, how do you get ready to pitch in the bottom of the ninth? You know, uh, it's just like, and the the workload is so irregular and your quick starts and stops and you have to warm up quickly. I just don't even know that that's better health-wise. I think that he needs to have a predictable schedule um, to where he knows when he's pitching and he can do his whole pitching routine and then he goes out there and does it. So I think starting for him is much better 
Um, as for the, the incentive clauses and all that, you know, that's probably if you'd asked me two years ago what he was going to do, I would have thought the contract would have had to have a lot of that just because teams, no teams would be sure uh, what he was going to do. But then once he got to be at such a high level, I figured he wouldn't have to settle for that because teams are just going to guarantee him a bunch of money anyway. Now it's maybe gone back to where uh, he might have some incentives that do get him up to the 600 that, that we didn't think he was going to get before. But there's still going to be plenty of guaranteed money. It's not going to be anything like a $200 million with a 400 more in incentives. It's going to be more like $500 million with another $100 million more in incentives or, or something like that, I think. Right. I think you give him, you pay him essentially as an offensive player, as a position player, and then the incentives you build off a of base. That's what one agent said to me. Maybe give him a, a guaranteed base salary of $50 million as a pitcher with a whole bunch of, uh, you know, incentives tied into how many times he starts, how many times he, uh, you know, he relieves if that's where he lands at some point. Well, <laughs> I'm sure that at times in covering this story, you're probably a lot like I am where people are asking you for answers. And I'm like, I, I don't really know. Like there's so much undetermined uh, as we move forward, but I'm going to ask you to make a guess about what team he's going to play for next year, just based on just a guess of being around the guy. I would I mean, have said, I'm, and I'll Jeff, I'll, I'll I'll bail you out a little bit. I'm going to say I, I would have said during the season, my guess was that he's going to wind up with the Dodgers. But I mentioned last week, I just don't know if Andrew Friedman, who's head of baseball ops for the Dodgers, is a sort who likes to take on that much uncertainty. Part of the reason why the Dodgers are so good is that they are risk averse. But that said, I don't really know where he's going to wind up. What do you think? I mean, the Dodgers have always been kind of the number one on the list because, you know, if we assume that Otani wants to win, the Dodgers are almost the most guaranteed, you know, money. If you want to have a chance to be in October every year, it's the Dodgers. And the Dodgers are, are pretty close as far as the atmosphere uh, to the Angels more so than like Yankees, Red Sox, that kind of thing. So I think that's always number one, but I do agree with what you said about them being kind of risk averse. And uh, I also think that the Angels' chances have increased because if Otani's going to have to go through this whole rehab to where there's a lot of uncertainty, maybe he just wants to do that where he's done it before, where he's comfortable, where he knows what the expectations are, where he knows what the people are that he's going to be working with. And maybe he does that with something like, uh, you know, an opt-out after the third year. So he gives himself a chance to get himself back to where he was in a comfortable environment. If three years from now things haven't worked out, the Angels aren't winning, and he's, you know, come back to his full level and he can make a ton of money as a free agent again, then he can do all this over again. And if not, then he's still got the guaranteed money that, that he got. So uh, I'm still going to go Dodgers number one, but I think the Angels are number two. Uh, and I, I lied. I'm going to give you one more. Uh, you know, you and I have had the conversation about Otani and how the Angels don't really ask him to do anything. I'm going to be really curious to see how that's handled by other teams uh, that uh, wind up bidding on him. Uh, we know that the, if he goes back to the Angels, the expectations he'll know are probably going to be the same. There's not going to be asked to do stuff, sponsorship stuff. There's not going to be an expectation for him with media. I got to believe that, you know, the Dodgers or other teams might say, yeah, we do want you to do some of that stuff. Like we ask a lot of other players. Um, and, and so I'm kind of wondering if Otani's camp would ever put any of that into writing to essentially build this bubble around him so he can go through his baseball schedule. 
That's a great question, and I think it's it's definitely a big piece of Otani's bubble that he's in is the way the Angels handle him, letting him basically do whatever he wants, which is not just in terms of the the media stuff and the appearances stuff, but you know when he plays and when he pitches and, and all this other kind of stuff that's gotten him into this place in the first place. So uh, I think that all that is just a known quantity with the Angels, and other teams would certainly. Today they're going to make accommodations for him, but to what degree we don't know, and he doesn't know. So I think all that is going to be uh, fascinating to see as we go forward. All right, Jeff. Well, I'll continue to read you. Thanks for all the information. All right. Thanks, Buster. Bleacher Tweets. All righty, Buster. Bleacher Tweets for a Wednesday. Let's talk about this Ronald Acuna thing where he was confronted by fans out in the the field i mean really some wild scenes there we got to get your thoughts on this well and really scary yeah uh it, you know because you don't know when the fans are out on the field what their intentions are and you know one of them put his arms around acuna and then acuna was trying to back up and then there was another one there and acuna wound up getting knocked down and apparently these were just two fans who want to get close to him but it's a reminder of how vulnerable these guys are you know, and, mm-hmm. and I think, uh, I mean, you're not old enough to remember when Monica Sellis, the tennis player, was stabbed uh, when she was sitting in her chair uh, with a, a fan basically reached over and, and, and attacked her. And you just don't know what the, what's going to happen. Now, Major League Baseball uh, is going to review protocols. Major League Baseball Player Association, I should say, uh, is going to review protocols uh, in an effort to keep players safe. But you can't protect everybody. No. And boy, that's why I must say when I covered the Yankees, their security team had a reputation for being hyper aggressive in dealing with people who ran on the field. And you know what? I personally think that everything it should be fair game. You run on a oh, field, yeah. they should come at you with tasers. Oh, you yeah, know what tasers. I mean? You, you should you, you, someone should beat you the heck up. Like like they should be throwing haymakers like you 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 entered the arena like like there should be consequences. I mean, this is ridiculous. It's happening all the time. And it's not even just like, oh, the person just running away from security. Like you can't you can't have any of this. Like it's not OK. You can't assume anything in this no. case. You just can't assume that, oh, you know, their intent was uh, benign and they all they wanted to do was say hi. No. And I, and I think I read last night that the two people that uh, had gotten close to Acuna were charged with trespass. Like, I mean, it feels like there should be more teeth put into it to protect the athletes. I agree. I agree. I mean, this wouldn't be I mean, if someone I don't know, man, like they like they're he's Ronald Cunha Jr. is working. If someone entered your workplace and started like assaulting you like that would be that would require more than a trespassing. I would think Uh, I don't know. I don't know what the solution is, Um, but yeah, it's well. And the whole thing about, well, they're kicked out for life and you're like, hey, if somebody's an idiot enough right. to run onto a field during the game, you think they really care about whether or not they're going to see a ball game in 2028? Right. You need to go to jail for a weekend and think about what you've done. That that would be my solution. Yes, exactly. All right. Let's go to the tweets here. Mr. Jakey, he sent this one to me last week. Um, I promised him we'd read it. So he writes in, just read John Fisher's interview, and my BS alarm was ringing loud and clear from his first comments that he's more of a steward than an owner. A steward doesn't sell off players and raise ticket prices to convince Major League Baseball to let him move the team aside from the A's. The Brewers are threatening relocation. The White Sox are are thinking the same thing. Are we in an era of owners and billionaires holding communities hostage if they don't get free handouts 
for ballparks. I haven't heard this much about relocation ages. Has John Fisher started a trend? Uh, look, anytime somebody in his situation refers to himself as a steward, I mean, give me a break. If you're a steward, then you'd keep the ball team in place. Right. In other words, yeah. you're just keep maintaining the franchise until the next owner comes along for the sake of the public good. That's not what he's doing. He's trying to make money. And, and which by the way is his prerogative. He's allowed to do that, but let's not pretend here. It's about the money. You know, if, uh, and I, I've read, uh, I think Hal Steinbrenner has referred to, you know, being a steward of the Yankees. Is anyone thinking that he's going to move the team? No. You can't claim to be a steward uh, and, and then look for a better deal someplace else. These guys, man, they 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 want to be loved, but they, they just can't get out of their own way. Uh, you know, moving the team, definitely not going to do that. Yep. Uh, Teddy Wilson writes in, when Jose Altuve recorded his 2000th hit, Miguel Cabrera texted Altuve, 1,000 more, please. If Altuve plays at least seven more seasons to age 40, he would need to average 143 hits per season, uh, nearly exactly his career hits per season. Over under 3,000 hits for Jose Altuve, Buster. I'm taking the under. Uh, I think that's a long way to go. Um, and let's face it, when you're his size, it feels like there's there's a little bit less margin for error. We have seen him miss significant time uh, with injuries the last couple of years. It's not, um, you know, and it's not like the, the injury he suffered this year was a broken thumb playing in the WBC. And so it's not like he has this pattern of injuries. But, man, I, I, I think it's going to be under. And as I've said before, for me, he's going to be a slam dunk first ballot Hall of Famer. All righty, Buster, that's it for Bleacher Tweets. Hashtag Bleacher Tweets on Twitter while you're watching games. We'll be back on Friday. Thanks for writing in, everyone. That's it for today. My thanks to Jerry DePoto, to Jeff Fletcher, to Hambo, and to Taylor. Have a great day, everybody. Thanks for listening. Stay safe, and remember, hate and inequality based on skin color is something we need to fight against every single day.